Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 304. Today's big Bible question is, what kinds of things do demons teach? Well, happy Monday, dear friends. Welcome aboard to new listeners in Washington, D.C., Hagerstown area, who downloaded 100 episodes over the weekend. And also Tampa, St. Petersburg, a person who downloaded 97 episodes over the weekend. And a new listener down under in Queensland, Australia, who downloaded almost 50 episodes. Good on you, mates. Good to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Great comment from Where What Huh? on episode number 302 which was on modesty, and he says, In considering the semantic range of the word modesty, I think we should oppose the idea with vanity. As an opposite, that is, and I think that's a great idea, we can immediately envision a person dressed modestly and a person dressed vainly. The key to me is that the vain outfit draws attention to the person, whereas the modest outfit does not. Oddly, to attend church in old jeans or sackcloth and ashes could be vain, if it were done in order to draw attention. By the same principle, wearing a tie and vest or a shiny sequined dress might be modest if that's how the others present would be dressed. In considering what we call modest and what we call vain, we should ask whether it deliberately draws inappropriate attention and glorifies the wearer. And I think that's a very well point uh, made point there, WWH, I think it is exactly consistent with what the Word of God says in talking about modesty. Modesty seems to be the very opposite of drawing attention to yourself, and you might can see how drawing attention to yourself during a worship service could be a very dangerous thing, because if attention is on you and not on God during a time of corporate worship, eh, that sounds a little scary. We, we want all glory and attention to be on God when we come together as a church. So that makes a lot of sense. Good comment there. At the Bible Reading Podcast home base, we have five children, ages 9 to 19. Most nights, we as a family endeavor to have, quote, Bible time which I suppose is the least creative name that anybody has ever used for a family devotional kind of thing. And that might explain why the kids are not always enthused about coming and sprinting as fast as they can. Of course, they eventually come and they listen and uh, listen-ish and and actually have some input some nights. But uh, maybe we should start calling it Snapchat Among Us Fortnite Hour of Power in the Word Time or something a little more hip like that. Anyway, While our kids do have real paper Bibles, they keep track of their own Bible reading plans individually on their own Bible apps. Now, if you've never tried this before, it's pretty handy. You can track your reading and have friends and such on most of these Bible apps because everything is social these days. And when you highlight a verse or start a new reading plan or finish a book in the Bible or whatever, oftentimes your friends are notified. Of course, you can control all of that, but... My kids want to be as social as possible, I suppose, especially during this pandemic time. You can also make Bible verse images, and that notifies your friends too when you do that. Yesterday, as a family, we read 2 Kings chapter 6, which has this very awesome part of it where Elisha asks God to open his servant's eyes, and the servant has his eyes opened by God, and he looks around and he sees the army of God encircling around them in fiery chariots. It's awesome and inspiring and really, really encouraging. Unfortunately, right after that, there's this passage about a siege 
that leads to a terrible famine that leads to people buying a cup of dove's dung to eat for two ounces of cereal, uh, silver, and a mother and her friend getting so hungry that they, well, let's just say they decide to do something just basically horrific that I'm hesitant to even repeat here. And guess which verses my kids highlighted in their Bible and made verse images about? Yes, you got it. Not the super spiritual ones, but the other ones. So I apologize to the parents of my kids' friends who might be traumatized by this sort of behavior. And I guess it's just another reminder of how many things we parents have to stay on top of in this day and age. Well, in less traumatizing news, our Bible readings for the day include 2 Kings chapter 7, Psalm 119 verses 25 through 48, Daniel chapter 11, and 1 Timothy 4. Today I'm going to explain to you exactly and precisely what the prophecies of Daniel 11 mean. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's a little bit of Bible humor for you. Instead of attempting that rather Herculean feat, our focus will actually be in 1 Timothy 4. And our big Bible question is all about, well, all about what? That is the question. I was initially excited to talk to you about the great apostasy that Paul is alluding to here in this chapter, but a quick search of our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, it turns out we've already discussed that, and I had forgotten. In my defense, that was like 200 episodes ago, which seems like a lifetime ago, so today we are going to ask a tantalizing question with a less than tantalizing answer, but the answer will be quite interesting and instructive. So our question is, what sorts of things do demons teach? And our answer is going to be found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, so let's head on over and read it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and and your hearers. So, I'll bet you didn't expect that, unless you know this particular passage quite well, or already read it today. Most would think that demons would teach people to drink too much, to swear a lot, and to play with Ouija boards all the time. And of course, I I recommend none of those things. But, it turns out, according to Paul, the false teaching of demons can be a bit more mundane than we would expect. 
Let me read the first four verses again. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, these teachings are going to come through lying people whose consciences can't feel anymore. Verse 3, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. So, what do demons teach? It would appear to be some sort of rules-based legalism, at least in this case. Does the Bible forbid marriage? Of course not. Does the New Testament forbid the eating of certain foods? Well, apart from blood, the answer is pretty much no. But apparently these false teachers, inspired by demonic and deceitful spirits, were teaching these rules that had no basis or foundation in the Word of God, and thus they had no power to transform or save or help in any sort of way. It's sort of like uh, taking a medicine that does harm to your body, but doesn't help even a little bit. It's actually kind of worse to be taking a medicine like that, because you think it should be doing some good, but in fact it's not, because it's not from the real doctor, it's from the fake doctor. Hopefully that illustration makes sense. I believe Paul elaborates on what he's saying here in 1 Timothy 4, In another chapter, in Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23, this is what he says there. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Now here Paula is telling us that some rules and commands, the kinds of rules and commands that are not in the Bible and thus are not God-breathed, are of no value at all in pursuing righteousness, but instead seem to do like physical harm to the body and or cause one to put on an appearance of holiness and piety when a person is not even being remotely godly, but just following human commands. Human commands that in this case may well be inspired and communicated by the demonic. This is why we must be really, really careful and deliberate and diligent to hold to the word of God and not hold to tradition and traditions that have no mooring and root in God's word. Now that is true for pastors, for Sunday school teachers, for parents, and honestly Christians with any sort of influence on other people. Our teaching must come from the word and really no other source. So here's John Piper today on the danger of false teaching in the church. And he says, To say false teaching harms the church is perhaps just to state the obvious, but in a day marked by much pluralism and subjectivism, it bears repeating. The very existence of the letters in the New Testament testifies to the importance that the apostles placed on sound doctrine. In the letters or epistles, sound doctrine is taught again and again and again, and error is implicitly or explicitly corrected. 
This is the case in every New Testament epistle. Sometimes false doctrine in the early churches threatened the gospel itself. Paul was concerned that false teachers would come to the churches of Galatia, even preaching a different gospel, in which case Paul says they should be accursed. And he told the Galatians that if they gave in to those who wanted to require circumcision for salvation, Christ would be of no advantage to them, Galatians 5.2. The implication is that salvation itself was at stake because people could not be saved through a false gospel. False teaching was a continual threat in other churches as well. For example, Paul warned the elders at Ephesus that fierce wolves would come in, not sparing the flock, and that even from among the elders themselves, there would arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's in Acts 20, 29, and 30. When writing to Timothy about the church at Ephesus, Paul said that those who teach a different doctrine far from promoting the peace and unity of the church and far from giving the church greater insight through conversations about their novel ideas actually harmed the church by their unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. Paul also warned Timothy to avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of certain false teachers, for by professing what they called knowledge, Paul says some of them had swerved away from the faith. In his subsequent letter to Timothy, Paul again warned Timothy to avoid such, quote, irreverent babble, for he said it will lead people into more and more unkind godliness. In fact, Paul knew that this was already happening for Hamanaeus and Philetus were upsetting the faith of some. He also warned that in latter times, some would depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's our passage today, 1 Timothy 4.1. With respect to the churches in Crete, Paul wrote to Titus that elders had to be able to both give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 1.9. He knew that false teachers were there, were upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Peter, in writing to probably hundreds of churches in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, warned that false teachers would arise among the people and that they would secretly bring in destructive heresies that many will follow their sensuality and that because of them, The way of truth will be blasphemed. Jude, in a similar way, urged his readers to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints because certain false teachers had crept in unnoticed, and far from being harmless, they were people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Maker and Lord Jesus Christ. That's Jude verse 4. After reading such verses, we might wonder if any of us have the same kind of heart for purity of doctrine in our Christian organizations and churches and the same sort of sober apprehension of the destructiveness of false doctrine that the New Testament apostles had in their hearts. If we ever begin to doubt that false teaching is harmful to the church or if we begin to become complacent about false doctrine, thinking that it is fascinating to ponder, stimulating to our thoughts, and worthwhile for discussion, then we should remind ourselves that in several cases the New Testament specifies that the ultimate source for many of these false teachings is Satan and his demons. Now, the 
Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 2 Timothy 2.24-26 The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And 2 John verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So folks, the stakes are high in terms of false teaching in the church. And let this be an exhortation and an encouragement and an urging to you to hold fast to the word of God and let go of teachings that are not rooted and grounded in the word of God. Because by holding to some of them, even if they have that appearance of wisdom, you know, you think maybe this does help a little bit. Chances are it's really more of a deceiving thing if it's not rooted and grounded in the word of God. And it could even be spawned by the enemy and his servants. So ponder that. And we will continue reading in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow at Samaria's gate, six quarts of fine flour will sell for a half ounce of silver, and twelve quarts of barley will sell for a half ounce of silver. Then the captain, the king's right-hand man, responded to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? Elisha announced, you will in fact see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. Now, four men with a skin disease were at the entrance to the city gate, and they said to each other, why just sit here until we die? If we say, let's go into the city, we will die there because the famine is in the city. But if we sit out here, we'll also die. So now, come on, let's go surrender to the Arameans camp. If they let us live, we will live. If they kill us, we'll die. So the diseased men got up at twilight to go to the Arameans camp. When they came to the camp's edge, they discovered that no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean camp to hear the sound of chariots, horses, and a large army. And the Arameans had said to each other, The king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to attack us. So they had gotten up and fled at twilight, abandoning their tents, horses, and donkeys. The camp was intact, and they had fled for their lives. When these diseased men came to the edge of camp, they went into a tent to eat and drink. They picked up the silver, gold, and clothing and went off and hid them. They came back and entered another tent, picked things up, and hid them. Then they said to each other, Eh, we're not doing what is right. Today's a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, our punishment will catch up with us. So let's go tell the king's household. The diseased men came and called to the city's gatekeepers and told them, Hey, we went to the Aramean camp and no one was there. No human sounds. There was nothing but tethered horses and donkeys and the tents were intact. The gatekeepers called out and the news was reported to the king's household. So the king got up in the night and said to his servants, Let me tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving. So they have left the camp to hide in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we will take them alive and go into the city. But one of his servants responded, Please, let messengers take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their fate is like the entire Israelite community who will die, so let's send them and see. 
The messengers took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army, saying, Go and see. So they followed them as far as the Jordan. They saw that the whole way was littered with clothes and equipment the Arameans had thrown off in their haste. The messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the Aramean camp. It was then that six quarts of fine flour sold for a half ounce of silver, and twelve quarts of barley sold for a half ounce of silver, according to the word of the Lord. The king had appointed the captain, his right-hand man, to be in charge of the city gate, but the people trampled him in the gate. He died just as the man of God had predicted when the king had come to him. When the man of God had said to the king, About this time tomorrow, twelve quarts of barley will sell for a half ounce of silver, and six quarts of fine flour will sell for a half ounce of silver at Samaria's gate. This captain had answered the man of God, Look, even if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? Elisha had said, You will in fact see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. This is what happened to him. The people trampled him in the city gate, and he died. Psalm 119, verses 25 through 48. My life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. I told you about my life, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Keep me from the way of deceit and graciously give me your instruction. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set your ordinances before me. I cling to your decrees. Lord, do not put me to shame. I pursue the way of your commands for you broaden my understanding. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to dishonest profit. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. Give me life in your ways. Confirm what you said to your servant, for it produces reverence for you. Turn away the disgrace I dread. Indeed, your judgments are good. How I long for your precepts. Give me life through your righteousness. Let your faithful love come to me, Lord, your salvation as you promised. Then I can answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take the word of truth from my mouth, for I hope in your judgments. I will always obey your instruction. Forever and ever I will walk freely in an open place, because I study your precepts. I will speak of your decrees before kings and not be ashamed. I delight in your commands, which I love. I will lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and will meditate on your statutes. Amen. Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. Now I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled, because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others beside him. The king of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her during these times. In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. 
He will take action against them in triumph. He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years he will stay away from the king of the north who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south and then return to his own land. His sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance, sweeping through like a flood, and will again wage war as far as his fortress. Infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight with the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but they will be handed over to his enemy. When the army is carried off, he will become arrogant and cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. After some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. Violent ones among your own people will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Then the king of the north will come, build up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select troops will not be able to resist. The king of the north who comes against it will do whatever he wants and no one can oppose him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land with total destruction in his hand. He will resolve to come with the force of his whole kingdom and will reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or support him. Then he will turn his attention to the coasts and islands and capture many, but a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. In his place, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he will be broken, though not in anger or in battle. In his place, a despised person will arise. Royal honors will not be given to him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away before him. They will be broken, as well as the covenant prince. After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation. During a time of peace, he will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers, and he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him, his army will be swept away, and many will fall slain. The two kings, whose hearts are bent on evil, will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for still the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Katim will come against him, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the Holy Covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the Holy Covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly towards the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame, and they will be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, they will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, 
for it will still come at the appointed time. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his ancestors, the god desired by women, or for any other god, because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god his ancestors did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land and many will fall. But these will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and Cushites will also be in submission, but reports from the east and the north will terrify him and he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. Amen and amen. Well, dear friends, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he shine his great grace on you. Good day to you and Godspeed.